This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress by Gary North. Copyright 1987, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Chapter 7 Epistemological Self-Consciousness and Cooperation The vile person shall no more be called liberal, nor the churl said to be bountiful, Isaiah 32.5. What is meant by epistemological self-consciousness? It means a greater understanding over time of what one's presuppositions are, and a greater willingness to put these presuppositions into action. It affects both wheat and tares. In what ways do the wheat and tares resemble each other? In what ways are they different? The angels of the parable saw the differences immediately. God therefore restrained them from ripping up the tares. He wanted to persevere the historical process of differentiation. Therefore, the full historical development of both wheat and tares is required by God. Clearly, this is a very strong argument against premillennialism. As the Christians develop to maturity, they become more powerful. This is not a straight-line development. There are times of locusts and blight and drought, both for Christians and for Satanists, humanists. There is ebb and flow, but always there is direction to the movement. There is maturation. For one thing, the Church's creeds improve over time. This, in turn, gives Christians cultural power. It is any wonder that the Westminster Confession of Faith was drawn up at the high point of the Puritans' control of England. Are improvements in the creeds useless culturally? Do improvements in creeds and theological understanding necessarily lead to impotence in culturally? Nonsense. It was the Reformation that made possible modern science and technology. On the other side of the field, indeed, right next to the wheat, self-awareness by unbelievers also increases. But sinners do not always become fully consistent with their philosophy of chaos. The Enlightenment was successful in swallowing up the fruits of the Reformation, only to the extent that it was a pale reflection of the Reformation. The Enlightenment's leaders rapidly abandoned the magic-charged, demonically-inspired Renaissance worldview. They retained the humanism of a Bruno, but after 1600, the Enlightenment's open commitment to the demonic receded. In its place came rationalism, deism, and the logic of an orderly, autonomous world. They used stolen biblical premises, secularized them, and thereby gained power. This is not to say that the demonic element ever departed from the Enlightenment. On the contrary, it was fundamental to it. James Billington's magnificent history, Fire in the Minds of Men, Origins of the Revolutionary Faith, 1980, shows that the French Revolution had its origins in occultism and sexual debauchery. The origin of 20th century socialism, both communism and Nazism, was in part the occult underground of the 19th century. There is even plausible evidence that Karl Marx had been involved in some sort of demonism as a young man, and perhaps even later. But these occult origins of modern revolutionism and scientific socialism were deliberately hidden by their founders, and especially by the Guild of Professional Historians. Billington is a maverick in this respect. Christians and humanists have borrowed from each other. Isaac Newton was an Aryan monotheist, not a Trinitarian Christian although he kept his theological views to himself. 
His theories of physics were based on his faith in the providential control of all things by God. He even devoted the last decades of his life to a study of the dating of the Exodus. Nevertheless, his mathematical formulas could be used and were used by anti-Christian thinkers of the Enlightenment to defend the idea of autonomous natural law that governs, governs an autonomous universe. They took his views far down the road toward atheism, which had not been Newton's intent. So compelling was Newton's vision of mathematically governed reality that Christians like Cotton Mather hailed the new science of Newtonian mechanics as essentially Christian. It was so close to Christian views of God's orderly being and their creation's reflection of his orderliness that the Christians unhesitantly embraced the new science. Christians did not see, and still generally have not seen, the danger to their view of the cosmic personalism of the universe that autonomous natural law systems pose. What we find, then, is that Christians were not fully self-conscious epistemologically, and neither were the pagans. In the time of the apostles, because of the historically unique revelation of God, church leaders enjoyed a high degree of self-awareness. The church's war with Rome helped to maintain this awareness. The church was persecuted, and it won. But even in this era of the Roman Empire, there was considerable muddled thinking on both sides. The attempt, for example, of Julian the Apostate to revive paganism late in the mid-fourth century was ludicrous. It was half-hearted paganism at best. It failed after two years. In the middle of the second century, A.D., Marcus Aurelius, a true philosopher king in the tradition of Plato, had been a major persecutor of Christians. Justin Martyr died during Aurelius's years as emperor, but the emperor's debauched son, Commodus, was too busy with his 300 female concubines and 300 males to bother about systematic persecutions. Who was more self-conscious epistemologically speaking? Aurelius still had the light of reason before him. His son was immersed in the religion of revolution and escape, cultural impotence. He was more willing than his philosopher-persecutor father to follow the logic of of his satanic faith. He preferred debauchery to power. Commodus was assassinated thirteen years after he became emperor. The Senate resolved that his name be execrated. The Marxist Challenge The African tribe, the Ik, see chapter 5, is so consistent with pagan demonism that its members are a threat to no one but themselves. Communists, on the other hand, are a threat. They believe in linear history. Officially, anyway, their system is at bottom cyclical, however. They believe in law, They believe in destiny, they believe in historical meaning, they believe in historical stages, though not ethically determined stages such as we find in Deuteronomy, they believe in science, they believe in literature, propaganda, and the power of the written word, they believe in higher education. In short, Marxists have a philosophy which is a kind of perverse mirror image of Christian orthodoxy. They are dangerous not because they are acting consistently with their ultimate philosophy of chaos, but because they limit the function of chaos to one area alone the revolutionary transformation of Borgo culture. I am speaking here primarily of Soviet communists. But when are they winning? But where are they winning converts? In the increasingly impotent, increasingly existentialist, increasingly antinomian West. Until the West abandoned its remnant of Christian culture, Marxism could flourish only in the underdeveloped, basically pagan areas of the world. And essentially Western philosophy of optimism communism found converts among the intellectuals of the Far East, Africa, and Latin America, who saw the fruitfulness of Confucian stagnation and relativism, the impotence of demonic ritual, 
or the dead-end nature of, demonic, of demon worship. Marxism is powerful only to the extent that it has the trappings of Augustinianism, coupled with subsidies, especially technological subsidies and long-term credit from Western industry, banks, and governments. There is irony here. Marx believed that scientific socialism would triumph only in those nations that had experienced the full development of capitalism. He believed that in most cases, possibly except, exception Russia, rural, rural areas first would have to abandon feudalism and then develop a fully capitalist culture before the socialist revolution would be successful. The industrialized West was still too Christian or too pragmatic, recognizing that honesty is the best policy, to capitulate to the Marxists, except immediately following a lost war. Mar Marxists have long dominated the faculties of Latin American universities, but not, uni not U.S. universities. In 1964, for example, there were only about half a dozen outspoken Marxist economists teaching in American universities, and possibly as few as one, Stanford's Paul Baran. Since 1965, however, new left scholars of a Marxist persuasion have become a force to be reckoned with in all the social sciences, including economics. The, the skepticism, pessimism, relativism, and irrelevance of modern neutral humanist education have left faculties without an adequate defense against confident, shrill, vociferous Marxists, primarily young Marxists, who began to appear on the campuses after 1964. Epistemological rot has left the establishment campus liberals with little more than tenure to protect them. Since 1965, Marxism has made more inroads among the young intellectuals of the industrialized West than at any time since the 1930s, an earlier era of pessimism and skepticism about established values and traditions. Marxists are successful among savages, whether in Africa or at Harvard, epistemological savages. Marxism offers an alternative to despair, it has the trappings of optimism. It has the trappings of Christianity. It is still a 19th century system drawing on the intellectual capital of a more Christian intellectual universe. These trappings of Christian order are the source of Marxism's influence in an increasingly relativistic world. It is also significant that as the appeal of Marxism begins to fade because of the inability of the communists to hide the economic failures of communism and the despair it produces, the Marxists have turned to the Bible. The adoption of liberation theology by Latin American Marxists is not simply a tactic based on the Roman Catholic historical roots of the region. It is also an attempt to infuse a sense of religious fervor and morality into a worldview that is dying. Communism's apply, appeal as a comprehensive worldview is increasingly limited. Word has spread concerning the bureaucratization of life it produces. It needs the language of the Bible to empower it. Satan's Final Rebellion in the last days of this final era in human history, the Satanists will still have the trappings of Christian order about them. Satan has to sit on God's lap, so to speak, in order to slap his face, or try to. Satan cannot be consistent to his own philosophy of autonomous order and still be a threat to God. An autonomous order leads to chaos and impotence. He knows that there is no neutral ground in philosophy. He knew Adam and Eve would die spiritually on the day that they ate the fruit. He is, a, he is a good enough theologian to know that there is one God, and he and his host tremble at the thought, James 2.19. When demonic men take seriously his lies about the nature of reality, they become impotent, sliding off, or nearly, nearly off, God's lap. 
It is when Satanists realize that Satan's official philosophy of chaos and antinomian lawlessness is a lie that they become dangerous. Marxists, once again, are more dangerous to America than are the Eek. They learn more of the truth, but they pervert it and try to use it against God's people. Thus, the biblical meaning of epistemological self-consciousness is not that the Satanists become consistent with Satan's official philosophy, chaos, but rather that Satan's army becomes consistent with what Satan really believes, that order, law, and power are the product of God's hated order. They learn to use law and order to build an army of conquest. In short, they use common grace, knowledge of God's truth, to pervert the truth and to attack God's people. They turn from a false knowledge offered to them by Satan, and they adopt a perverted form of truth to use in their rebellious plans. They mature, in other words. Or as C.S. Lewis has put into the mouth of his fictitious character, the senior devil Screwtape, when materialists finally believe in Satan but not in God, then the war is over. Not quite when they believe in God. No, he is going to win, and nevertheless strike out in fury. Not blind fury, but fully self-conscious fury at the works of God. Then the war is over. Cooperation How, then, can we cooperate with such men, simply on the basis of common grace? Common grace has not yet fully developed. When it does, the covenant keepers will at last rebel. Until then, we can cooperate with them. But this cooperation must always be in the interests of God's kingdom. The decision as to whether or not a particular ad hoc association is beneficial must be made in terms of standards set forth in biblical law. Common grace is not common ground. There is no common ground uniting men except for the image of God in every man. Christians, not pagans, are supposed to set the agenda in any cooperative venture. Pagans sit under the king's table. We do not sit under Satan's. They are supposed to feast on our leftovers, not we on theirs. Because external conformity to the terms of biblical law does produce visibly good results, contrary to Professor Klein's theory of God's mysterious will in history, unbelievers for a time are willing to adopt these principles, since they seek the fruits of Christian culture. In short, some ethical Satanists respond in external obedience to the knowledge of the work of God's law written in their hearts, Romans 2, 14 and 15. They have a large degree of knowledge about God's creation, but they are not yet willing to attack His church. They have knowledge through common grace, but they do not yet see what this means for their own actions. To some extent, the communists see, but they have not yet followed through. They have not yet launched a final military assault against the West. In short, honesty really is the best policy. If Christians are honest, non-Christians will want to cooperate with them. The non-Christian wants the blessings that Christians can get through honest labor. Thus Laban, or Laban hired Jacob. Potiphar employed Joseph, as did the ruler of the jail and then Pharaoh. The kings of Babylon and Medo-Persia sought Daniel's counsel, etc. They want the fruits of biblical faith, even if they do not want the covenantal roots. Shared Knowledge The essence of Adam's rebellion was not intellectual. It was ethical. No one has argued this more forcefully than Van Til. The mere addition of knowledge to or by the unregenerate man does not alter the essence of his status before God. He is still a rebel, but he may possess extensive knowledge. Such knowledge can be applied to God's creation, and it will produce beneficial results. Knowledge can also produce a holocaust. The issue is ethics, not knowledge. Thus, men can cooperate in terms of mutually shared knowledge. Ultimately, they cannot cooperate in terms of a mutually shared ethics. This is why God separates people eternally at the day of final judgment. The development of men's rival ethics over time makes any cooperation impossible. 
The Satanists cannot stand to be in subjection to God, God's law, and God's people. They eventually rebel. What are the special cursed? Common grace increases the unregenerate man's special curse. When common grace increases to its maximum, the special curse of God is revealed. Total rebellion of man against the truth of God and in terms of his common grace. Knowledge, power, wealth, prestige, etc., which then leads to final judgment. God does remove part of his restraint at the very end, the restraint on suicidal destruction. He allows them to achieve that death which they love, Proverbs 8.36b. But they still have power and wealth right up to the end, as in the Babylonian Empire, the night it fell, Daniel 5. Pagans can teach us about physics, mathematics, chemistry, and many other topics. How is this possible? Because God's common grace to them has increased. They had several centuries of leadership from Christians in the United States, as well as from Enlightenment intellectuals who adopted a philosophy of coherence that at least resembled the Christian doctrine of providence. Humanists cannot hold the culture together in terms of their philosophy of chaos, Satan's official viewpoint, but they still can make important discoveries. They also tax Christians at rates far higher than the tyrannical 10% that Samuel warned against, for Samuel 8:15 and 17. They use stolen capital in every sense. Christians must set the agenda. When there is Christian revival and the preaching and widespread application of the whole counsel of God, then Christians can once again take the position of real leadership. The unbelievers also can make contributions to the subduing of the earth because they will be called back to the work of the law written in their hearts. Common grace will increase throughout the world. During this expansion era, Christians must be extremely careful to watch for signs of ethical deviation from those who seemingly are useful co-workers in the kingdom. There can be cooperation for external goals. The fulfilling of the dominion covenant which was given to all men, but not in the realm of ethics. We should observe the Soviets to see how not to build a society. We must construct countermeasures to their offenses. We must not adopt their views of proletarian ethics, even though their chess players or mathematicians may show us a great deal. The law of God as revealed in the Bible must be dominant, not the work of the law written in the hearts of the unrighteous. The way to cooperate is on the basis of biblical law. The law tells us of the limitations on man. It keeps us humble before God and dominant over nature. It is our task to determine the accuracy and usefulness of the works of unregenerate men who are exercising their God-given talents, working out their damnation with fear and trembling. Strangers within the gates were given many of the benefits of common grace, God's response to the conversion of the Hebrews. They received full legal protection in Hebrew courts, Exodus 22, 21, and 23, 9, Deuteronomy 24, 17. They were not permitted to eat special holy foods, Exodus 29.33, Leviticus 22.10, thereby sealing them off from the religious celebrations of the temple. But they were part of the Feast of the Tithe, a celebration before the Lord, Deuteronomy 14.22-29. Thus, they were beneficiaries of the civil order that God established for His people. They also could produce goods and services in confidence that the fruits of their labor would not be confiscated from them by a lawless civil government. They made everyone richer, for all men in the community could work out the terms of the Dominion Covenant. We are told that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2, 14-16. We are told that God's wisdom is seen as foolishness by the unregenerate, 1 Corinthians 1, 18-21. There is an unbridgeable separation philosophically between unbelievers and believers. They begin with different starting points, chaos versus creation, man versus God. Only common grace can reduce the conflict in application between pagan and Christian philosophy. 
The ethical rebellion of the unregenerate lies beneath the surface, smoldering, ready to flare up in wrath. But he is restrained by God and God's law. He needs the power that biblical law provides. Therefore he assents to some of the principles of, of applied biblical law and conforms himself to part of the work of the law that is written on his heart. But on first principles he cannot agree. And even near the end of time, when men may confess the existence of one God and tremble at the thought, they will not submit their egos to that God. They will fight to the death, to the second death, to deny the claims that the God of the Bible has over every part of their being. Thus there can be cooperation in the subduing of the earth. Common Grace versus Common Ground We must not argue from common grace to common ground philosophical principles, such as the hypothetical principle of non-contradiction, or an equally hypothetical natural law. As common grace increases over time, there will be greater and greater separation ethically in the hearts of men. With the increase of common grace, we come closer to that final rebellion in all its satanic might. Common grace combines the efforts of men in the subduing of the earth, but Christians work for the glory of God openly, while the unregenerate work officially for the glory of man or the glory of Satan. They do, in fact, work to the glory of God, for on that last day every knee shall bow to him. Philippians 2.10 The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. Proverbs 13.22b But ethically speaking, they are not self-consciously working for the glory of God. All facts are interpreted facts, and the interpretation, not the facts as such, there are no facts as such, is what separates the lost from the elect. Inevitably, the natural man holds back, actively suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. No philosophical proofs of God, other than a proof which begins by assuming the existence of God revealed in the Bible, can link unregenerate minds with regenerate. God the Father, not logic, brings men to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, John 6.44. There is no common ground philosophically, only metaphysically. We are made in God's image by a common creator, Acts 17.24-31. Every man knows this. We can, as men, only remind all men of what they know. God uses this innate knowledge to condemn lawfully all unregenerate men. The unbeliever uses stolen intellectual capital to reason correctly. Correctly in the sense of being able to use that knowledge as a tool to subdue the earth. Not in the sense of knowing God as an ethically adopted son knows him. John 1.12 His conclusions can correspond to external reality sufficiently to allow him to work out his rebellious faith to even greater destruction than if he had not had accurate knowledge. Luke 12.47-48 and 48. He knows somehow that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and also that this fact of mental symmetry can be used to cause desired effects in the external realm of nature. Why this mental symmetry? Why this mental symmetry should exist, and why it should bear any relation to the external realm of nature, is unexplainable by the knowledge of natural man, a fact admitted by Nobel Prize-winning physicist Eugene Wigner. Christians, because they have a proper doctrine, can explain the coherence of men's minds, the coherence of the universe, and the coherence of the link between the two. The unbeliever cannot explain this coherence by means of a philosophy of ultimate randomness. Nevertheless, he operates as if he could explain it. He operates in faith, so the unbeliever uses stolen intellectual capital at every step, because the unbeliever's capital base is ultimately God's. Christians can use some of his work by checking his finding, findings against the revelation in the Bible. And the unbeliever can use the work of Christians. The earth will be subdued. The closer the unbelievers' presuppositions are to those revealed in the Bible, 
such as the conservative econo- economist's assumption of the fact of economic scarcity corresponding to, G- to Genesis 3, 17-19, the more likely that the discoveries made in terms of that assumption will be useful. By useful, I mean useful in the common task of all men subduing the earth. Thus, there can be cooperation between Christians and non-Christians. Conclusion The fall of man was ethical, not intellectual. Men's minds are under a curse, for man himself is under a curse, but the problem with man's mind is primarily ethical. Thus, Christians can use the technical skills and specialized knowledge of the unbelievers, just as unbelievers can use the Christians' talents. The division of labor through voluntary market exchange helps each group build up its respective kingdom. We can cooperate with the enemy in positive projects because of common grace. Our long-term goals will be achieved because we have special grace. We can set the agenda. We have the ethical goods. They have the ethical bads. They want the benefits of biblical social order. They can be the hewers of wood and drawers of water, Joshua 9, until the day when they at last rebel, and God crushes them for all eternity. Summary 1. Both wheat and tares develop to maturity. 2. There is ebb and flow in the expansion of God's visible earthly kingdom. 3. There is creedal progress. 4. Covenant breakers also develop epistemologically. 5. Power seekers do not work out in practice what their increasingly self-conscious, suicidal theology leads them toward. 6. Newton's worldview was not consistently anti-Trinitarian. 7. Christians adopted Newton's worldview uncritically. 8. This had led to confusion, as each side has progressively become more self-conscious. 9. Marcus Aurelius was less consistent with paganism, and therefore more of a threat to the church than his debauched son, Commodus. 10. The Marxists are more of a threat to the West than the African tribe, the Eek. 11. The Marxists have stolen a biblical outlook, so they are more successful in recruiting despairing savages. 12. Satan dares not become consistent with his self-professed philosophy of existence if he wishes to rebel against God in power. 13. The Satanists need common grace in order to run a successful rebellion against God and God's kingdom. 14. We can cooperate with our ethical enemies because Bible-based conclusions still dominate society. 15. Biblical principles produce benefits that unbelievers want. 16. They will cooperate with us if they want more of these benefits and if we are faithful servants before God. 17. Christians are to set the agenda for cooperative ventures with pagans. We hire their services. They sit under the king's table. 18. In the division of labor, pagans do possess valid knowledge that we can use for God's purposes. 19. The guide to proper cooperation is biblical law. 20. Common grace in no way promotes a common ground intellectually. 21. There is no common ground intellectually except the image of God in all men. 22. Only the doctrine of creation can offer a sufficient reason why man's mind can grasp the laws of nature. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows 
or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.